0: Welcome to CRE Success, the podcast, where we help people working in commercial real estate achieve their professional goals. Check us out online at cresuccess.co forward slash podcast. And now here's your host, Darren Krakowiak.
1: Welcome to episode 19 in season two of CRE Success, the podcast. My special guest today is Paul Roos. It is no exaggeration. say that paul roos is one of the most influential people in australian rules football in the last 40 years highly regarded and universally respected he's got too many accolades to mention but here's some that you should know Brucey's playing career spanned 356 games for two clubs. He's been a club captain for many of those years and he's a seven-time All-Australian. He is one of the game's most highly regarded coaches, known for building a high-performance team culture at Sydney, where he oversaw a Premiership win after just three years at the helm. And then he transformed the fortunes at Melbourne Football Club and currently he's serving in a mentor role at the North Melbourne Football Club. He's been one of the best special commentators in the business when he has been in the media and his leadership prowess has seen him be one of the co-founders at Performance by Design where he is also appropriately their head coach. I'm very pleased to be speaking to Paul Roos today, all about leadership in business. My interview with Rosie starts in 30 seconds. 90% of the world's data was generated in the last two years. Credia is a business intelligence and analytics tool for commercial real estate professionals. Using real-time insights, track key portfolio metrics and benchmark against the market so you can make faster and well-informed decisions. With live dashboards and bespoke reporting, impress both your executive team and your property clients. It's time to turn data into your most valuable asset with Credia from Released.
0: And now it's time for the interview on CRE Success, the podcast.
1: Ruzi, welcome to CRE Success, the podcast.
2: Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me.
1: First thing we do in all of our interviews is step into the virtual elevator and we've got to hear our guests give their elevator pitch. So, Paul, who are you?
2: Yeah, I, I guess I'm a, an ex-professional uh, athlete, well, semi-professional at the start, working, playing footy, uh, coaching the Swans and then Melbourne Footy Clubs, probably now, probably consider myself you yeah, know, really much in the leadership space, you know, run a company called Performance by Design, do some business, uh, small business, medium business retreats, nurture group retreats, which are sort of on hold a bit. Um, so, yeah, really stepped into that space and probably trying to share the 40 years of knowledge I've had through working and then through AFL footy and through coaching and, and sort of spread the word to a lot of corporates around Australia and we've got an international arm as well to our business. So yeah, that's uh, probably in a, in a quick summary who I am.
1: Awesome. So what type of companies does Performance by Design work with?
2: Yeah, pretty much everyone. Uh, people ask us that a bit. Um, if it's a bigger company, we typically work with you know, the leadership teams, um, smaller startups and family companies. We get a chance to work with everyone, which is which is really cool. So, and, and anywhere in between, you know, often we'll work with the bigger companies' exec teams and then the GM managers, and then we'll get down. We've also got a, an institute now, which is an online learning platform, which we actually are able to get to more people within the organization. So, really, all industries, all sizes, you know, anyone that wants to, you know, the, what, the way we talk about it is taking the chance out of culture. So, anyone that really wants to take the chance out of their culture and shape their culture, uh, we also talk about role model leaders. So, they're probably our main principles. And then we build platforms around that. So, people have got a really clear understanding of what their company values are, what their behaviors are, and they act act their way into the system or they act their way out of the system.
1: And with uh, all the restrictions when it comes to face to face, uh, interactions. Is it more difficult for companies to build culture now than it was pre-pandemic?
2: Yeah, well, it's certainly been a, a huge topic. So we've actually adjusted quickly last year. One of our bigger clients really wanted to get stuck in with their GMs and we we changed our one-day um, workshop to a four, two and a half hour. Worked really, really well. So now we're well equipped now to bounce in and out of face-to-faces, virtual um, you know, Zoom calls, so we're really ticking over most of our companies really nicely now. And at some point we get face-to-face if we start um, virtual or if we start virtual, sorry, face-to-face, and we have to, to tip into virtual and we do that as well sort of thing. So, but, but it's certainly something that our leaders that we're dealing with are really concerned about, you know, the, the lack of connection with working at home, the lack of collaboration working from home. Work, working in silos is always a challenge but you can imagine what it's like now that everyone's at home. So we're doing a lot of work around that.
1: Excellent. Well, I've seen the uh, videos that you post on LinkedIn, so I can see you've got your head head around Zoom. So, um, And that's how I came across really understanding more of what you're doing at Performance by Design. But I know a lot of our listeners who even remotely follow AFL will, of course, know you as the leader's leader or perhaps the coach's mentor and I've noticed that a lot of the real focus that you've had in interviews has been around the people elements of leadership, um, the importance of relationships, understanding roles and responsibilities, and and the the role of culture. Um, What I wanted to ask you with that framing is what do you think are the common parallels between team sports, leadership and performance, and then leadership and performance in a corporate context?
2: Yeah, well, as I said, when I first started, um, we were sort of part-time, so probably not as much because we were, you know, we'd go down to training, get there at 4.30, train for two and a half hours as hard as you possibly can and then get, get out of there. As we moved into the mid-90s when it become fully professional and when I took over as coach, it was a fully professional industry. Now, incredibly similar, incredibly similar. You know, what, what we take from sport is probably the immediacy of sport Sport is a high-pressure environment. You know, the, the, the results are on the Monday paper. So if you don't change really quickly, you know, going from a you know top-down-based organisation to relationships you mentioned, empathy, um, empowerment, leadership, you don't survive in AFL football. You can survive longer in the corporate world because there's not the accountability around it, but eventually you're going to get caught out. So enormously similar. Probably the biggest, other biggest difference is the amount of time football clubs spend on their culture compared to corporates, it'd be ten to one. You know, for every you know, my business colleague Jared Murphy's doing running the leadership program at North Melbourne. I mean he would have been in there since November probably 40 times. Yeah. Now in that same period, if you get a, a really good company, yeah, you might be in there um, in the space of nine months, four times. Yeah, so it's 10 times the amount of contact hours that you get at a sporting club because of the immediacy of needing to get to your goal really quickly.
1: You mentioned there about how professional sports teams and AFL is as an industry now. But of course, in the 80s and 90s, I guess that was still emerging when you were first a club captain. And I'm guessing back then there wasn't as much of a huge focus on leadership skills development and perhaps it was more sort of lead from the front. So I'm curious to know, how did you actually learn about leadership and, and how have you developed and honed those skills over time?
2: Yeah, the first part is probably the key to it, to be perfectly frank, because what I realised, as you said, there was no, nothing on the wall. There was no leadership groups. There was nothing about empowerment. It was really just top down. You know, Wolsey was my first coach. Yeah, we had 60, 70, 80 players turn up pre-season. So what I realised pretty quickly, leadership is about role modelling behaviours. Now, they can be bad behaviours, you know, and then you've got bad culture. But I was really lucky at Fitzroy, that I had really good leaders, really good role models. So that's the first point. So to any of the, the leaders listening, you know, if you're in a leadership role, you have to be a role model. Don't ask people to do things that you won't do yourself. The second part of the question is really just honing that over 17 years of playing. And then I wrote some notes down when I finished playing October 1998 about the things I liked about my leaders, the things I didn't like about my leaders. And then starting to think about, What is empowerment? You know, why don't we get players more involved in decision-making at footy clubs? So the concept sort of evolved over time. And then I ran into um, my current business partner's business partner uh, 2002, 2003, and that's when we embarked on the leadership program at the Sydney Swans. And then it really came to life for me, exactly how it works, exactly how it's shaped. And now the things that are more mainstream – you know, we started doing them back in two thousand and three. Leadership groups, building strong relationships, showing great empathy, having really honest conversations. You know, now you walk through even a bad footy club now does that reasonably well.
1: When you stepped up as captain uh, Fitzroy back in the late eighties, was that your first leadership role, or had you been a, a natural leader as a as a younger man in high school or elsewhere?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think I I might have only captained one team. In, the, in Beverly Hills. I was captain of the Victorian state basketball team on a couple of occasions, but, but probably more just a, 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 good player, you know, that I played, played well, had pretty good habits, good. You know, my parents were both that, you know, tennis players. So we were always around sport and all that sort of stuff. So not necessarily, but I had a good lens. Um, as I said, going to the tennis club every weekend. I remember two guys that stand out for me, Kevin Rose, who's an ex- actual AFL player and coach, um, and his doubles partner, Barry Bryant. So even watching those two guys, the way they competed, you know, over and over and over again. So I think I think just the exposure I had to basketball, to football, to tennis, to my parents, to my parents' friends and all that, probably allowed me to develop some leadership capabilities. But it wasn't until I got to Fitzroy that I saw Gary Wilson, Bernie Quinlan, Laurie Serafini, Mickey Conlon, that I sort of started to shape what a leader was, and then you sort of get thrust into it. I think I was like 23 or 24 a captain, and then you, your, main, your main obligation then is to try and play as well as you possibly can. And then, as it turned out, it wasn't great at the time, but because we went through so many really bad periods at Fitzroy with no money and a lot of problems, I was the one that the players were calling. So then you develop another level of empathy and leadership and starting to think outside yourself, and you start to think about more about your teammates. So so that's probably how it really evolved over the years.
1: And, of course, when you stepped into the the head coach role at Sydney, you were an assistant coach who became a caretaker coach and ultimately became the coach. And um, how did you know that you were ready to step into that role and and take on that role at the time? Because it's such a huge role, and, you know, the path towards being a head coach is, I guess there's many different ways to get there, but your path was quite quick. So how did you gain that confidence and take on that responsibility?
2: I think in hindsight, probably those experiences I've talked about, 1998, I went overseas, 99, and lived with my parents, uh, my wife's parents, and went to the Chicago Bears, Chicago Bulls, San Francisco 49ers, Denver Broncos. I got an opportunity to work with Pete Sambres, my best mate, Brett Stevens, one of my mates, was his business coach. I think, I think I was sort of subconsciously developing those skills without really knowing... That I was going to be a coach, sitting down at October 1998, writing down the things I liked about my coaches, things I didn't like about my coaches, and then making a decision um, at the end. Of, I worked on the Olympics for, for C7, ironically 2000, and then I got an offer to be full-time coach, defensive coach at Sydney. So whilst I, I, I never really knew whether I'd be a senior coach, when I look back, I think I was always formulating a plan What I encourage leaders to do now is take a lot of notes. I wish I had done that, but take a lot of notes, write down some things during your day, during your week. And then, I mean, it was really a whirlwind when I got the job. You know, Rodney Ede left on the Monday. They asked me to coach on the Tuesday. I had to make the decision by Wednesday. You know, thankfully, we had a buy that following weekend. So I guess I only really consciously decided when the opportunity came, but I think the preparation had been going for a long period of time.
1: Hmm. Um, i know you've had experience coming into organizations and helping them develop high performance cultures and obviously melbourne is the is the very high profile example of that and i'm sure you're doing a lot of it behind the scenes and also what you're doing at performance by design what are some things that you're focused on when it comes to diagnosing issues as an incoming leader or as a as a mentor as you're currently doing at north melbourne yeah
2: certainly from a corporate point of view firstly it's really the watching the workshops, observing. You know, the first day is probably our audit. You know, when we actually really, really get to work with the, the leaders, we get to see the interaction, we get to see the body language, we get to hear the conversation. So you get a really good snapshot on the first day or if we're doing it virtually the first sort of two and a half hours. Um, and, and sometimes we overcomplicate culture. Culture is just about the actions of what we see. So if we see people turning up on time, if we see really good in, engagement, if we see really honest conversation, then we know we've walked into a pretty good culture. Yeah, if we, if we see people, yeah, we, 9 o'clock, you know, we start, 9.15, we're still waiting, 9.20, we get to start, a lot of silence when we ask questions, you know, body language, you can sort of tell, oh, should I say something? I don't think the CEO want to hear that then we know we've walked into a bad culture. So it's really the observation that I I love. And I love the, I sort of love the face-to-face when you've got the half an hour when everyone turns up because you can learn a lot before the workshop starts as well. So that's really our diagnostic tool as well as, Pre-workshop, we talk a lot to the the leaders, the people around. We also have a care factor survey, which we send out to our clients, which gives them an opportunity to send to their staff. So we'll get a really good understanding of what that looks like as well.
1: You've been part of some uh, very successful succession plans, um, obviously with Simon Goodwin in in Melbourne. And we've seen recently one that hasn't gone so smoothly and plenty of examples of that um, in in the sports and, and the corporate world. I guess I want to ask you, what have you found underpins one, you know, creating that deep bench of talent so you know the legacy can live on? But also how do you ultimately allow for that smooth transition of power when when the time is right?
2: Yeah, I think the first part is is not enough companies develop their people in a leadership sense. We you know when we when we typically work with companies, we know they're technically really good, you know. So if we're working with a like a car manufacturer or whatever, we know they're technically really good at what they do. If we work with an IT company, we know they're technically really good. I think what corporations can spend more time on is leadership. You know, you touched on empathy. What does actually, what does empathy mean? Authenticity, empowerment, you know, roles, all those sorts of things. So that's that's probably the big thing that, that I would say on that is just, you know, make sure you're, you're getting that part of it Right as well, you know, so people feel like you're upskilling them while they're in the job, and then if you do that really well, the succession plan becomes a lot easier, you know. So, with John Longmire, yeah, you know, at Sydney, John and I pretty much started our journey together. I'd been there a couple of years before him, he came in as assistant coach, but when I was coach, um, you know, he, he was my assistant, so we pretty much built everything collectively. And when it was time for me to leave, I recognized that, you know, it was time for me to move on. And the club recognized John was going to be. So that was a really easy, smooth transition. And I think that's part of it. What I would say is let's not confuse, and I don't want to be controversial, but let's not confuse the Collingwood and the Hawthorne succession plans as succession plans because they're sackings and replacing someone within that organisation. So that's not a succession plan. That's sort of an easy way to sort of say to Mick Malthouse, we don't want you, but we want you to stay for a year. And an easy way to say to Alistair Clarkson, you know, we want to put Sam Mitchell Mitchell in, so it's a bit of a soft landing. So when you've got two quality coaches like Malthouse and Clarkson, you know, it's bizarre that you would treat them the way both those footy clubs treated them. So in a normal succession plan, it can be seamless because a, the CEO is saying, yes, I'm moving on. We've got a great CFO. We've got a great you know, head of marketing. You know, we've worked together for a long period of time. The next 12 months is going to be about me easing them in. And it's really seamless, to, to be perfectly frank. The, other, the others don't work quite as well as we've, as we've seen.
1: I guess succession plans are only succession plans if everyone's on board with the plan. Yeah, Um, that's right. And uh, obviously at Melbourne Footy Club, you were really coming in to pass over the reins after I think two or three years, right? So um, you were always on board with the plan.
2: Yeah, and that part of going to Melbourne, which was slightly different at Sydney, was yes, the succession plan was on from day one. Yes, I will come in, we'll reshape the organisation, we'll get it to a point where we possibly can and we'll get someone in that can take it to the next level. So that was a different part, but certainly driven by me, accepted by Peter Jackson, Glenn Bartlett, who did an amazing job, both of them, you know, to contribute to an enormous turnaround the footy club, Todd Viney, Josh Marnie, all the coaches I brought in. And then we appointed Simon after my my first year. He had two years to really learn the craft and then take the, the club to the next level.
1: And they I think, third position right now. So it's it's, it's looking good in 2021. Um, let's talk about leaving organisations on good terms. I don't know if it's been your specific intention, but it seems like an outcome for you has been being able to leave on good terms. And what, what's some advice that you can give people when they leave an organisation to make sure they don't burn their bridges on the way out the door?
2: Self-awareness is probably the one that the most underrated skill for me. You know, I think too often we get we get ground, um, caught up in our own importance. I mean, we also have to feed our kids and put you know, food on the table and, and clothe and pay mortgage and stuff like that. And I, I think it, it also leads us down a path of, of knowing we're not doing a great job or knowing someone else can do something better, but we hang on and we bite and scratch and fight and we know our performance has dropped a bit and we know we're getting a bit bored or whatever it might be, but we don't have the self-awareness to sort of say... Gee, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I stop now? When I'm at the top of my game, I'm slightly, you know, a bit tired. I'm a bit burnt out. I know I'm good at what I do, but it's time for this company to go somewhere else. You know, I've had a great opportunity, great time. They've given me, you know, great support. And I know if I do that, that I'm going to get another job anyway because people will respect me for doing that. I think. I think there's a number of things at play, but for me, it was always. Where's the footy club at? You know, what does what does Sydney Swans need at this particular time? What do the Melbourne footy club, what are they looking for? How can I help or how can't I help? Yeah, and, and Sydney's a great example that, you know, I left in 2010 and, and John was able to win a premiership in 2012, you know, and I couldn't have been more proud of, the footy club at that moment when, you know, everyone was saying, oh, the Swans are going to go down, They'll, you know, their salary cap and all that sort of stuff and, you know, they're on the way down and then horse takes them to win a premiership in 2012 and, yeah, you know, look where they are now. So I think it's just, I think it's being self, selfless, but having a really good self-awareness. I mean, if you still think you're the best person to do it, you um, you know, keep doing the job. But if you're not, and, you, and this little man on the little man on shoulder is not bad. He's pretty honest, isn't he, most of the time. You know, said, mate, you're, yesterday you would have got up a bit early, got into work a bit more earlier, and today you, yeah, you slept in a bit or you did this. He's a pretty good barometer of, of whether you should or shouldn't be doing a job.
1: I think um, you touched on there about self-awareness, and I'm thinking about, um, you know, early in your coaching career there were there were people who were critical of some of your, your style of defensive play, um, you know, some of the trade decisions that perhaps um, people didn't agree with, um, but you, you stuck to your guns and, you know, the premiership came in 2005, right? So obviously you were onto a good thing. How do you sort of um, keep those, keep keep that noise away from from your inner core and, and, and stay the course into, into doing what it is that you need to do to get to where you need to get to?
2: Yeah. I mean, a leader has to have a plan, you know, and I think it, Part of having that plan is, you know, the discussion with your players, with your assistant coaches. Yeah, so it's really important, you know, that the assistant coaches find – you know, what we talk about having a safe work, experience, you know, work environment. Everyone feels comfortable speaking up. Renee Brown talks about a lot, safe psychological safety. So you've got to create an environment where everyone feels comfortable to speak up. And, you know, when we were going through that time at Sydney when um, Andrew, Andrew Dimitro criticised us – we just knew we weren't playing that well. You know, we were having discussions as a team, but the players were still confident in the game plan because we'd seen it work. And when we implemented our game plan, so again, it gets back to really rigorous pre- reviews, you know, rigorously rigorously reviewing, you know, your, your sales meeting, rigorously reviewing why you didn't meet budget, you know, whatever that is. So for us at Sydney in the football world, we rigorously review everything we do and we try to get better continually over and over and over and over again. And, and if you do that, you know, that's, you can, that's all you can control. You know, you can't control what other people who really don't have a lens into your organization, Yeah, you know, all they really see is the share price, um, you know, how many cars may have been sold, where you are on the ladder, et cetera, et cetera. So don't get outcome focused, you know, that's my message. Don't get outcome focused, really focus on the process. And if you get the process right, the outcomes will look after themselves.
1: Love that, leaders need a plan. Good stuff. Um, I wanna ask you one last question really in your capacity as a, a former father of the year in Australia. And you know, from what I've observed on LinkedIn, you're a really great supporter of your son's endeavors. Um, what message would you share to time poor professionals who are really you know, dedicated to their business but it comes at the expense of their families?
2: What I want to say, firstly, let's, let's knock on the head this notion of work-life balance. It's one of the worst terms we can actually talk about because and the reason I say that is when I was coaching Sydney and going into the office, I still had a wife and two kids. So they, they, were, still, they were still part of my life. I wasn't Paul Roos, the football coach. And when I went home at night, I, I still had a job to do. You know, we have to talk about life balance. And if we talk about life balance, then in the context of what your life is, you have much more opportunity to to balance that out. The other thing I would say is don't necessarily wait for the big moments or wait for the the magical holiday to to Aspen or, you know, Gold Coast or whatever it is little and often, little and often read, you know, read a bedtime story, put, put an hour aside to take, you know, the the kids to, to um, breakfast before dropping them off to school, you know, get into a cadence and I guarantee if you get into a cadence, and, and I did this really well at Sydney and Melbourne, people around you will un- know that cadence really, really quickly. And they will understand, oh, we don't ring Paul after 6 o'clock at night because we know that, you know, and we, and we know with computers now we can do a lot of work when the kids go to bed or whatever. So, so start thinking of life balance. You know, if you can duck out of the office, I used to duck out of the office and go and watch the boys run an athletic meet while they were at public school. It was 10 minutes away, you know, drive back again. You know, so I think it's just this notion of work-life balance is ridiculous. It's life balance. And just look at all those little opportunities that you might pass up because you sort of think, ah, oh, that's only an hour. You know, I've got to wait for the weekend. Don't wait for the weekend because when the weekend comes around, something else might might come up. Take that hour. Take that half an hour. Take that 15 minutes and use it really, really wisely.
1: Thanks for that advice. I'm a new dad. So I'll make sure I take that on board. And um, I'm glad I didn't ask you to give me your thoughts on work-life balance because I um, I might've got a spray in return. Um, Ruzi, if our listeners would like to find out more about what you're doing at Performance by Design, what's the best way that they can do that?
2: Yeah, look, I'm on LinkedIn if they want to message me directly or just go to the website, www.performancebydesign.com. Um, yeah, look us up. Um, there's a lot of really good stuff. I think you have mentioned you've seen some of our Culture Couch live, which we do. We also do a Culture Couch, which is on the thing as well. But it gives you a really good idea of what we do do. Or, yeah, as I said, just get hold of me on LinkedIn, which a lot of people do. Uh, shoot me a message and we'll come out and have a chat. Happy to do that.
1: Um, I know there'll be some people listening to the podcast who don't usually listen because you're on. I won't ask you if you're going to coach again, but um, are you going to get back on the couch at Fox footy? I miss you on there. When the media commitment's coming back.
2: Yeah, well, funny enough, I, I stopped them last year because I was going to go for the second time ever. So I started playing footy in 1980 and the only time I hadn't been involved in, in football was 1999 when I went overseas. And then I came back and been involved in footy. So we decided we are going to go to Europe for about five weeks in the middle of the footy season. Um, and then COVID hit. So I've still got a I've still got a Croatian cruise booked, actually. So, um, so yeah, look, in, in terms of the media, um, look, I, I really enjoy what I'm doing now. Um, yeah, I, I try to travel a fair bit as well. And um, so I'm passionate about more of the leadership stuff now. So, we'll, yeah, we'll never say never, but... Um, yeah, media tend to move on pretty quickly with with people, and then get to the next person. I, I'm sure Bucks will be on the, possibly on the couch. Sure, Bucks will be somewhere, and uh, maybe Clark over a year if he doesn't go to the thing. things. So it will be fascinating to see where everyone ends up.
1: Brilliant. Well, Ruzi, look, it's been a real great pleasure to speak to you. I appreciate you giving me the time. Thanks so much for being my guest on CRE Success, the podcast.
2: Yeah, fantastic. Thanks a lot.
0: For more information about our guest, visit CREsuccess.co forward slash podcast. And now a final thought from Darren Krakowiak.
1: Hey, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Paul Ruse. Thank you again, Rusey. People often ask me, what does it take to succeed in commercial real estate? And over the past year or so, I've really tried to articulate that in a few ways. There's the five P's of commercial real estate success, which is an ebook I wrote when I launched CRE success in 2020. It outlines the most common attributes of the industry's top earners. Then there was the seven keys to success in commercial real estate, which I presented a couple of months ago. And I actually shared that as a limited release podcast episode or episodes that content covered the core skills you need to achieve prolific levels of performance. However, when it comes to that one thing, I've really had to spend some time reflecting on what has helped me improve over my career. I've also had a good think about what has been the most important factor I've seen as determining others' success. Now, the good news is that I've finally cracked the code. Even better, this is something that I'm sure you know about and you can definitely get better at. And the best news is that it's something that is not talked about very much in our industry. So mastering this one thing can help you become a top performer in your market. I'm building a new program that is underpinned by the one thing that will make or break your results in the modern commercial real estate industry. To be the first to know what it is, just go to CRE Success co forward slash the one thing the one thing is all one word spelt out and register because i'm going to be holding a workshop on it and you'll be the first to be invited to join this new program that starts next month that's cre forward slash the one thing thanks so much for listening i will speak to you soon
0: Thanks for listening to CRE Success, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and be sure to leave us a five-star review. For more information about the show, just check the show notes on your podcast app or visit us online at cresuccess.co.